0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security. I'm your host, Vago Miradian. Later in the program, a look at how Russia's most formidable cyber unit goes on the road worldwide to crack tough targets. But first, joining us again is Andrea Schaumann. Uh, She is Fortress's Director of Federal Programs and Partnerships, uh, who is joining us back to back, one of the few people who can manage to pull that off. Uh, Last week, she told us what to expect at the world's leading training and simulation conference and trade show, formerly known as the Inner Service Industry Training, Simulation, and Education Conference, otherwise known as ITSEC, uh, in what is the verdant training and simulation ecosystem that is Orlando. Today, she's joining us from the show floor to give us an update on what she's found out regarding cyber and the training and simulation ecosystem. Uh, And we are going to have uh, another training and simulation update from the show floor Uh, tomorrow, given that this is a space that's moving so quickly uh, that it's surprising even those in the industry, much less all of those who are not in it. Uh, Andrea, thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure having you on.
1: Thank you so much. I was so excited to catch up with you over here.
0: Same here, Uh, in part because we very separately were having um, different conversations actually about the same topic, alarming us about it. So actually, uh, it's, it's great to have you on because you were finding out some of those Same things. Before we get to that, our daily coverage is sponsored by Bell. Our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS, Fortress Information Security. Sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications. Sponsors our command and control coverage. Uh, Our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting and trade show was sponsored by Safran and Leonardo DRS. And our coverage of the Halifax International Security Forum, uh, as well as our coverage of the upcoming Reagan National Defense Forum in California, uh, are sponsored by Leonardo DRS and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Um, so, uh, Andrea, you know, last week we talked a little bit uh, about H-bombs uh, and S-bombs, and that's software Uh, and hardware, bills of origin, and uh, materials. And what I thought was fascinating was, you know, in this week where we were separated by uh, nearly a 1,000 miles, you in Orlando and me in Washington, D.C., it was astonishing the number of folks who actually didn't know what that is and the significance of it. And obviously, it's the administration's strategy uh, and and, um, demand, actually, that there be software, bills of origin, and materials bombs and hardware bills of origin and materials to get an understanding of what kind of software exists in our military systems and critically important national systems and what kind of hardware there is, because there's Chinese and Russian software uh, that may be running in uh, a lot of uh, the lines of this code, just like there's uh, actually might be um, more Chinese hardware uh, involved even in our military systems than we want to admit. What were some of the key takeaways um, from your time at ITSEC? And what needs to be done to better educate people on what S bombs and H bombs are we're trying to do our part on the show I know that that's one of the things that you're charged with at, at fortress sort of walk us through sort of the macro trends but also specifically what has to be done on the educating part of this front.
1: Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head with uh, highlighting the importance and the value of education. Um, almost all of the conversations that I've had uh, so far this week have hinged on education first and then application of the tool second. So if you don't fully understand what the requirements are, what you're looking at, where the vulnerabilities exist, then you don't know what the solutions are or the appropriate solutions to apply without overhardening the environment and making it more difficult to function. Um, so having that discussion and like you mentioned HBOM and SBOM and really spelling that out so that people understand what a hardware or software bill of materials is, what the information can be gleaned from those and why it's valuable to um, tear down those assets or get in and evaluate the the software bills of materials in order to highlight vulnerabilities or at least understand where risk can enter the ecosystem. Also, having the conversations uh, helps break down that codified language. So if people feel comfortable talking talking about these topics and addressing them and they understand what's being discussed, then they can start working together and building a, a solid approach to safety.
0: We do um, have quite a lot of listeners on the show. Obviously, it attracts a little bit more of a, of a cyber audience. That said, we're trying to do this as a service to everybody to educate and and make cyber accessible to people. What more has to be done organizationally, institutionally? Because some of the people who actually don't know about this are actually some folks who are actually in the IT uh, ecosystem, uh, right? I mean, and we, we know there's a difference between IT people and cyber people, Um As well as senior leaders and thinkers who are not actually fully uh, uh, up to date on this. I mean, what needs to happen educationally beyond, you know, Vago and Andrea having a whole bunch of conversations to talk to, you know, individually talk people into, oh, my God, this is a big deal.
1: Right, right. So stepping away from cyber evangelism and, and getting into cyber defense education it's really about understanding where each of those stakeholders, you mentioned IT and OT and cyber folks, what their individual priorities are and ensuring that they're not competing priorities, um, understanding and educating them on what their peers and colleagues and other stakeholders within their environment, those challenges that they're facing, and breaking down those barriers, You know, breaking down the silos and the stovepipes that keep not only data and information, but operations uh, separate and making sure that they understand that it's it's one team, one fight and how they can share information and leverage information in order to create a more secure environment. So that all comes back to education, whether it's education about cyber defense or education about what their peers are doing to attack this problem.
0: You are at a show that's an extraordinary nexus of the military training and uh, simulation ecosystem, as well as commercial industry. And indeed, commercial industry is well in advance uh, of anything uh, that we're generally seeing in the government uh, space, a much more willingness and openness to commercial off the shelf Uh, solutions, which, as we discussed last week, creates a whole set of potential vulnerabilities. But actually, does it give you a better ecosystem, a more open ecosystem to drive change and to try to improve security, right? I mean, what can all of the folks in government learn about how commercial off the shelf works and a commercial approach to this is that could actually get us to a safer place faster?
1: Well, I think what you're highlighting is, you know, what I say every week or every time I get the opportunity to talk with you, which is the value of public and private partnerships. So, Uh, You have the government who can really learn from the lessons and the speed that the commercial sector moves. And then you have the commercial environment that can leverage the um, vast amount of data and access that the government has that they can't touch. So you know, when you have these collaborative cross-functional teams working together to tackle a specific problem, and again, pulling in diversity of thought, diversity of resources, you're going to arrive at a better solution than if you keep them separate and working either um, in parallel or against one another.
0: Uh, Let me ask you one last question, and I know this is something that we've discussed both both on the program, but as well as uh, when when we've uh, talked in person uh, or or not, you know, while we've been recording. It's great that we're going to try to get our arms around what the threat is, right? I mean, it starts, as you said, with a recognition of what the problem is. Has anybody come to grips with what the cost of remediation for this could be? Because I have a feeling this is going to be a little bit like an iceberg, um, right? I mean, we may be thinking it's, it's a shaved ice cone. It's actually an iceberg, and that will demand action at a pretty significant level. I mean, what's your sense about how, how big the iceberg is and whether we're actually ready to tackle the iceberg or eat the elephant or whatever analogy you might use?
1: Right. Well, I mean, again, it goes back to education, having people really fully understand the environment, having them understand and prioritize the need for solutions and understand where their vulnerabilities are. And rather than assigning one specific cost and thinking of it in a really overwhelming way, you think of it as a significant investment. So the times have changed and the way they allocate resources and effort, including money, has to change and adapt as well. So it's not a one-shot, one-kill solution. It's going to be a continuous investment, making sure to stay um, ahead of the threat, uh, proactive adop- adoption of policies and regulation and cyber hygiene practices, and you know, just looking at it as something that needs to be continuously monitored and supported as you know, not just a budget line item for one year, but a continuous threat vector that needs to be protected.
0: Andrea, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. It's always a pleasure having you on the program and look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much.
1: Likewise. Thanks, Vago. I appreciate it.
0: And joining us now is our old friend, Justin Sherman, uh, who is the founder of Global Cyber Strategies, a D.C. research and advisory firm. He's also a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Cyber Statecraft Initiative. Uh, He is also a Wired Magazine contributor. He is also the author of a recent issue brief uh, issued by the think tank GRU-2615, the Russian cyber unit that hacks targets on site. Uh, Justin, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Uh, and indeed, congratulations on your new venture, and and wish you nothing but uh, success uh, on it. Uh, and and uh, you've you've just gotten even even busier than you were before. So thanks for making time for us. Um, you note in the piece that you know we think about Russian hacking and cyber activities of, you know, the GRU 26, uh, 165 unit, right? The ones top secret unit, uh, the vaunted military intelligence cyber unit sitting in St. Petersburg and hacking the Democratic National Committee or the RNC or anybody else. And and indeed, the image that folks have is, you know, folks sitting in dark rooms, right? Whether they're at US Cyber Command or somebody in a hoodie in a basement surrounded by snack food wrappers, uh, right? But you detail in this piece how they actually operate forward, even if they get caught sometimes, as in 2018, uh, Dutch intelligence intercepted them. Walk, walk Walk us through why Russians, and indeed others, hit the road to execute some sophisticated cyber operations.
2: It's a really good question, and it is an important point. We think about people, you know, eyes dead, staring at screens in dark rooms, typing away. But Uh, The fact of the matter is, as with this GRU team, as with, we can imagine, uh, Western Western. intelligence organizations and others, sometimes you want to go to a particular location to break into a computer system. Sometimes that's, you need someone to physically get a drive into a building. Uh, You know, if we think back to Stuxnet, the uh, cyber operation uh, that the U.S., ran against uh, the Iranian government and the nuclear enrichment plant uh, plant they secretly had in uh, Natanz that was one of the components there was getting uh you know malicious code to destroy centrifuges into uh, a bunker basically that was not very internet connected um with this russian unit we see similar things where if an operation uh, sometimes is not successful remotely, if they can't break into say uh, the organization for the prohibition of chemical weapons, a mouthful, the OPCW, it enforces the chemical weapons convention. If they can't break in from uh, Moscow or St. Petersburg or wherever they are, they actually will go overseas to try and get closer to uh, the actual target. So Um, It's a really interesting phenomenon. It's not unique to Russia, uh, but the Russians have done it. They've gotten caught doing it. And it's a really important uh, consideration when we think about how do we actually track and how do Western governments combat uh, Russian cyber operations against governments, businesses, uh, NGOs, and, and others.
0: Um, and I, I want to uh, get to that uh, in a minute. How how do they do what they do, right? Because in some cases, it is as simple as somebody with a laptop sitting in a coffee shop, right? But but actually what they're trying to do is a lot more sophisticated and actually requires equipment and, and, and teams. What is the nature, uh, you know, how large are these teams, how many folks are involved, and what is the kind of gear that they're using, which uh, falls beyond what, uh, you know, Justin or Vago are going to be caught with on a average street corner <laughs> for life <Right>. <laughs> <a> better... <laughs> unless we're up to something very fishy um
2: yes exactly certainly. and, and uh, nothing to see here i want to address just keep, driving. Um, keep driving keep
0: exactly. driving, which is
2: also what the the russians said who got caught no but but um but really yeah they they uh go on site to get closer to these targets as mentioned and it is a very effects oriented reason to do so it's not you know, because it'd be fun to hop on a plane. It's because, you know, we need to get closer to make this operation um, happen. So one uh, example that uh, I talk about in this piece um, about Unit 26165, this GRU cyber team, uh, is their attempted hack of the OPCW in 2018. Uh, Folks will recall that um, the GRU, a different GRU unit, had in that year, tried to murder uh, Sergei Skripal and his daughter, Yulia. Um, you know, Sergei being a former Russian intelligence officer who turned uh, to the British. The GRU tried to murder them in England using a chemical weapon, uh, the Novichok nerve agent. And so uh, in response to this, there was huge international outcry. There was uh, an investigation that the OPCW launched into uh, the use of this chemical weapon attack. Um, You know, and what was the point? The point was, let's see what happened, and let's also see if we can identify a particular country that was responsible. So you have this situation that touches on an issue the Kremlin cares a lot about, which is defectors and its assassination programs. Uh, It's also potentially uh, very bad for the Russian government's international reputation to be caught um, not just trying to kill. Uh, yet another person, yet another two people, but also using a chemical weapon to do so. So um, the GRU sent these uh, operatives from its team, 26165, to uh, the Netherlands. They landed, they had diplomatic passports, um, they were met by someone from the embassy there, and then they proceeded to drive around Uh, The Hague, including the uh, OPCW building with, as you said, a bunch of equipment um, like Wi-Fi antennas and a bunch of other things that they linked up in the back of their car that were designed to, it appears like, connect to networks and intercept signals and that kind of thing. It's not the kind of thing your average tourist would have in the back of their car when they're driving around seeing the sights of The Hague. So um immediately suspicious same thing with who they were met by but again they brought all this equipment because that remote access evidently was not doing it and they wanted to get on site to be able to
0: run this cyber operation uh, and uh you uh, noted, uh, uh, you know, you you mentioned the uh, attempted and, and botched attempted murder of Sergei uh, Skripal uh, and his daughter Yulia, which was carried out by Unit 29155, um, which is um, of the GRU uh, as well. While uh, the FSB, uh, the successor organization to the the foreign uh, Federal uh, Security Service, um, uh, was uh, also does assassinations and has proven to be. Uh, remarkably successful, unfortunately, as well worldwide. So how do governments, uh, Justin, need uh, to counter this? Uh, Right, um, you know, in in the case, in that particular case that Dutch intelligence uh, revealed it was somebody from the Russian embassy, um, you know, met uh, met the four perpetrators, you know, their names uh, were outed, uh, as we saw with uh, the Skripal, uh, murder, right? I mean, people unfortunately died from that, and uh, the the two intelligence operatives were named, and and Russians interviewed them on TV, and they said we were just there to see the majestic medieval spire of uh, Salisbury uh, Cathedral, uh, as as tourists do, mm-hmm. right? I mean, what are what are the ways that you know we we increase warning detection, but also stop these? Because the Russians are not always clumsy; they're sometimes clumsy, but they can also be very, very good at set, you know, executing these kinds of set piece operations.
2: It's a really important question for policymakers. Um, you know, one, I'd say a couple things. The first is that uh, when we're thinking about how do you track Russian cyber operations and how do you counteract Russian cyber operations. Yes, a lot of the time it's a really tricky scenario with people in Russia doing things remotely where it's really hard to reach them. That might be uh, an FSB or GRU hacker, uh, you know, who's conducting espionage and you can't really deter espionage, you can shape it, but you know, it could be a cyber criminal in Russia that the government is not going to go arrest. And so the US is trying to say, could you please go do something? Uh, and put pressure on Moscow to do something. But we do have some of these cases where government operatives are going overseas to run cyber operations. So um, it's not just looking at code and seeing where it came from, but you could actually track people's movements. You could do things like watch who lands at an airport and say, well, these four guys just came in from Russia. They have diplomatic passports and bags of equipment, and they're meeting with someone from the embassy when they land. So you can do sort of basic law enforcement or intelligence, uh, you know, data gathering and watching people and following people to understand some of these operations and to actually arrest the people behind them, which is what the Dutch uh, intelligence uh, personnel did. They followed around these Russians in The Hague. They took pictures of the Russians sitting in their car Uh, outside of the OPCW building, and a few days into it, uh, they moved in and arrested all of these um, people and sent them back to Russia. So that's the first thing. If we're thinking about how do we combat Russian cyber ops, some of it's human personnel traveling, that's something that you can uh, seize upon. The second thing here is that there isn't really any public evidence of other Russian security agencies besides the GRU doing this. And this is going to get a little in the weeds, but, um, you know, you mentioned assassinations. The GRU, which is Russia's military intelligence agency, is known for being really aggressive. Certainly others are aggressive, too. The Foreign Intelligence Service, the SVR, has operatives all over the world uh, and runs espionage out of Russian embassies globally. Uh, the FSB, the KGB successor you mentioned, uh is brutally repressive at home and also has killed people outside of Russia as well. But the GRU really is known for raising uh, operations for violent behavior that even makes other Russian security agencies look and think, what the heck are those guys doing? Uh, And so it's really interesting that uh, the only Uh, cyber team from the Russian government we know of that goes overseas to do this is in the GRU, is in an organization known for uh, really uh, reckless, brazen kind of activities um, around the world. So we can think about this in terms of uh, intelligence culture, right? Cyber is one component of operations. It makes sense in some ways that a really aggressive Russian uh, intelligence organization would also be really Uh, aggressive in cyberspace. Um, And the third thing just to think about is that uh, there's always the question of how far up the chain does oversight of these activities go? Of course, there was a big debate uh, about this uh, in 2016 when um, the Russian government hacked the DNC, hacked the RNC, spread disinformation, right? Right. How far up the chain did it go? And the US intelligence community has said, well, for something of that caliber, we're talking Vladimir Putin himself, we're talking the highest level of Russian power to at least approve an operation like that. So there's an open question for policymakers when we talk about really uh, kind of out there activities like sending people overseas to follow people around and hack into targets on site. Uh, of how far up the chain um, oversight goes. And that matters because if you're trying to combat something, you need to know who holds
0: uh, the right levers to make it stop or to change how it it happens in the first place. Your time is short, but there are two important questions I want to get your uh, take on uh, in part uh, because uh, you recommended we talk about this next one, uh, the day after Thanksgiving uh, last Friday. The Federal Communications uh, Commission, citing national security concerns, banned all US sales of new telecommunications products by China's Huawei and ZTE and restricted video surveillance equipment manufactured by other Chinese firms. What does this practically mean, and how does it fall into the sort of broader context of all the levers uh, both the last administration and this administration were pulling to reduce um, exposure? Uh, to nefarious uh, Chinese uh, componentry and technology, as we heard from uh, Andrea uh, at the top of the program.
2: This builds, this FCC uh, action uh, last week, builds on a few years of attention to Huawei, to ZTE, to other Chinese technology companies that the U.S. Nat- uh, US national security community has said pose uh, a risk. That might be because of a really close relationship with the Chinese government, like with Huawei. Uh, That could also be because the Chinese government is gonna look and like any government is gonna say, if we have technology in many places in the world, we're gonna start using that to spy on other people. Uh, And so um, the Trump administration, uh, to your point, had implemented a ton of these kinds of policies about Huawei, they uh, had, uh, a years long diplomatic campaign to try and get other countries to ban uh, Huawei five G equipment. That campaign was pretty unsuccessful, I would say. Actually, uh, they didn't really handle it well, and there was a lot of blurring of risks. Um, you know, people not really distinguishing between specific cybersecurity issues like possible backdoors and economic issues like concerns about uh, Huawei uh, hegemony in certain parts of the world. Um, All to say, a lot of these actions started in the Trump administration to say, we need to get rid of Huawei equipment in the U.S., we need to get rid of ZTE equipment in the U.S., Um, and Biden has continued a lot of those actions. He signed legislation uh, about exactly a year ago now, actually, um, that uh, you know, stopped uh, the FCC from giving equipment licenses to companies on uh, this covered list, like Hickvision, the Chinese surveillance company like uh, Huawei and CTE. So um, it's a significant move. It uh, is a continuation in in some ways, between Trump and Biden administration policy. Um, but it really does show, I think, with this with semiconductor, uh, export controls recently, et cetera, that, um, you know, both Democratic and Republican administrations are really intent on uh, limiting the reach of Chinese technology in the US.
0: Um, uh, just uh, really quickly, uh, because I want to uh, get your take on uh, the uh, Suffolk County ransomware uh, attack, but really quickly. They're talking about banning new sales, right? And partly the video surveillance issue was driven by state and local governments buying Chinese surveillance equipment, right? Just because and everybody was using digi drones, including military units. We've stopped that because of the potential risks associated with it. They can't sell new equipment. What is this? You know, like what happens to all the equipment that's already been sold and in the inventory and in circulation? That's exactly the question. Um the
2: Uh, Congress has, if we're talking about Huawei, for example, Congress has allocated some money for what we can call rip and replace programs. So saying to a smaller vendor, okay, you bought a bunch of Huawei cellular network equipment a few years ago. You're a tiny company. You maybe didn't know this was a concern or you weren't thinking about it. Now that we've said it's a security risk, here's some funding we can give you to cover the costs of getting rid of it and putting something else in. So that's had a really slow rollout, but there is at least some recognition, hey, companies already have these systems uh, in place and there are costs associated with getting rid of it. Um, in other areas though, uh, like with uh, Hikvision cameras, um, we don't have those kinds, at least to my knowledge, don't have those kinds of programs on the books. And so uh, you get this problem, which uh, we often have in cybersecurity, right? Where there's some old equipment that shouldn't be used anymore because it's not updated. In this case, there is some cheap foreign equipment that was bought a while ago, uh, in part because it was cheap, um, but is a security risk, but the company or organization is going to keep it there because, oh, well, we just spent all this money and they might not really see the risks in uh, the same way. So we have to think about that kind of rip and replace issue as well.
0: Um, we've got about a minute uh, left uh, New York Times uh, reported it's a great story and I suggest people read it. Uh, the detailed uh, uh, Suffolk County Long Island uh, was uh, thrust back to the 1990s in the wake of a ransomware uh, attack uh, over the summer. in the wake of colonial pipeline and food and other ransomware uh, attacks right the issue gained prominence although state and local governments have been dealing with it Baltimore, Uh, our uh, our, uh, friendly city that reads uh, just north of Washington, DC, basically told the uh, ransomware folks to go screw themselves, and they would rebuild the city's database as opposed to paying the ransom. What does this uh, Long Island attack tell us uh, about the threat and the continuing nature of it, right? Because the administration did tout at one point, hey, we're being, um, you know, somewhat more successful in sort of deterring these attacks. And yet, They're continuing in part because people are making money. We have
2: seen more and more ransomware attacks every year. It's a super lucrative industry for cyber criminals. What this event underscores is that small organizations are often a target. It's not just a large company that might have $10 million to go pay an external law firm to handle their breach response. Um, these are small schools, hospitals, libraries, municipalities who get hit and might not have data backups for all the right. stuff. Uh, you know, the county in this case said driver's license numbers and all this other stuff was stolen uh, in the in the attack. So it's a huge problem uh, for small organizations. And I think, you know, CISA and some other agencies are focused on it, but uh, we really need more Uh, accessible resources for small companies and small government uh, shops to actually be able to protect themselves against these threats.
0: Justin, always a pleasure uh, having you on the program. Thanks very much for joining us and look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.